Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Galicic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Eva Vukusic about her new book, Serbian Paramilitaries and the Breakup of Yugoslavia. Now, Eva is an assistant professor in international history at Utrecht University and a visiting research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College, London. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, really happy to have you with us today and to talk about your new book, um, Serbian Paramilitaries and the Breakup of Yugoslavia. And this study really examines the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, but with a particular focus on paramilitary violence. So I'm interested if you could tell us, how did you become um, kind of focused or interested in this area of research? Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in the former Yugoslavia. I come from Zagreb, from Croatia. And while I was not directly victimized by the war, um, I remember it well. And I remember the turmoil, the fear, the violence, the, the suffering of civilians and the instability, nationalism, sort of all of that that dominated uh, the decade um, and this period of me growing up. Um, and it led me to started following the trial against Slobodan Milosevic some years later. Uh, that was going on, of course, in The Hague. I was following it from afar because at the time I was working as a young journalist at Radio 101 in Zagreb. After that, I did my master's studies in Sarajevo and, and in Bologna and Italy in a human rights program and wrote a thesis on the Inter- International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Uh, then I continued uh, working as an analyst and a researcher at the Special War Crimes Department of the Prosecutor's Office in Sarajevo, so in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And basically, my job was to help prosecutors and investigators build cases and indict alleged perpetrators of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Then in 2009, I arrived in The Hague. I worked at the Sense News Agency, which is also, which was also based at the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. The acronym that we're going to be using uh, is the ICTY. Um, and I and I followed basically all the ongoing trials for several years, so Mladic, Karadzic, and, and many of the other big trials. So my path, so to say, to these topics was long. And when I started my PhD in history in Utrecht, which was in 2015, I already spent a considerable amount of time and sort of you know effort working on perpetrators in the context of the former Yugoslavia, and, and paramilitaries were very much part of that story. So it made sense to write a dissertation, and, and that dissertation was the basis of, uh, for this book, within a broader project on paramilitarism that was led by Dr. Ungor, who is a professor now at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, And this project was focusing on paramilitaries. So I worked with other people kind of uh, um, that were busy researching these kinds of actors in different contexts. And these paramilitaries, I felt in the former Yugoslavia, were a violent actor that was widely discussed in literature. So literally every book about the breakup of Yugoslavia, much journalistic reporting, talked about these units and and these men, because it was mostly men, but they remained sort of poorly understood. Um, That's that's how I felt. So that sort of led me to to the project, um, and and that's how this, this book came about. 
Yeah, look, I mean, that's a very interesting approach to this topic coming from, you know, already an experience with uh, working with this material and, and especially in the context as, as a journalist and, and moving towards a more kind of academic focus on, on this area, which, which you rightly point out stayed on the margins of uh, scholarship for quite a bit of time. Um, I guess we can start with some definitions, if you don't mind. Um, can you tell us what is a paramilitary unit? Um, why do you also focus specifically on, on um, Serb paramilitaries? You note in your book that other warring parties experienced um, kind of some form of this paramilitary engagement. So I was wondering if you can tell us why focus on, on this particular group. Um, and perhaps also if you can tell us what is the difference between Serb and Serbian terms or, 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 or um, phrases that you use throughout your book? Sure. So um, let me tackle the, the second half of that question uh, first. So Serbian uh, basically in my book refers to Serbia proper. So the, the, the Republic um, uh, of Serbia, um, which was, of course, then part of Yugoslavia. When I use Serb, it, it refers, it's, it's kind of a broader term, and it sort of refers to various actors in Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, so local Serbs, not from Serbia proper. These populations lived in Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And basically, this is an effort to, uh, to, dis- to make a distinction between um, uh, actors that came from Serbia proper and actors that were quote unquote local in Croatia and in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because I, I feared that, especially for people that were not sort of in depth in this topic, if I said just Serbian, they would assume that they all came from Serbia proper, and that's that's very much not the case. So, and in the book, I, I discuss it uh, in in some length uh, because I deal with both sort of uh, units that were affiliated with kind of the regimes you know, in, 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 in Belgrade and in Serbia, um, and, and also these kind of, kind of partners, so to say, in Croatia and Bosnia. I focused on Serbian paramilitaries not because, as you noted, uh, uh, other quote-unquote sides of the conflict did not have any uh, paramilitary units, nor because I argue that they alone were the sole or quote-unquote, again, worst sort of perpetrators of violence. Um, I, I, I talk about this choice explicitly at the beginning of my book. I focus on Serbian paramilitaries because they were most numerous um, and engaged in a wide variety of areas from the beginning of the war in Croatia, so in 1991, through the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was 1992 to 1995, and then all the way to Kosovo, which is the end of the decade, 1998 and 1999. So because these units basically mobilized a larger numbers of volunteers, than those on the other sides. And they just acted in a wider space for a longer time. And ultimately, because of this as well, they hurt more people. Um, also, another book by my colleague Kate Ferguson in the, U- in the UK came out um, n- not long before I finished my dissertation. And she kind of had this broader approach, focusing on various units across different sides. So I did not want to duplicate that uh, effort. Um, on the definition of paramilitary units, so there are numerous potentially overlapping concepts here that scholars, practitioners, journalists, and others use to describe similar units. And we see this very much in other con- contexts and conflicts around the world. So militias, armed groups, non-state actors, mercenaries, you know, vigilantes, death squads, all kinds of terms are used for units that are in some way uh, overlapping or, or similar. So there is no consensus on a definition. And for the purposes of my book, I decided to define them as groups of people, as I already mentioned, mostly men who are armed 
who are organized. So they have some kind of a hierarchy and a structure to them. Uh, my third sort of criteria was that they were recognizable. So they would have a name or insignia. My fourth criteria was that they were political in their goals, even if political was broadly defined and not necessarily publicly stated. And crucially, I would say, um, the, the unit at the time of establishment does not form part formally of the state apparatus. And I took the moment of establishment as a key uh, here, because as readers of the book will, will note, I talk about units that through time became sort of more formalized and quote unquote sucked into the state. Uh, so some units started off as, as uh, paramilitaries and then later on sort of became uh, a part of the state apparatus. So this is the, the definition that I um, kind of invented for the purposes of my book. Um, but again, there's no consensus. And, and that's also partially because these actors are so diverse and, and their co- the context in which they act are so different. It's very difficult to find a, a definition that will work perfectly. You know, the former Yugoslavia in Sudan, in Ukraine, in Venezuela, or, or, you know, in, in any other place on earth. I think you do a really fantastic job in trying to, you know, capturing this term Serb, Serbian paramilitaries, all this complexity, because indeed, you know, paramilitaries itself is such a layered term. Um, and your use of, of um, kind of Serbian, Serbian also um, tells a little bit about that relationship between the Serbian state and, and Serb paramilitaries and the complexity of that relationship that we'll talk about Um to, to our conversation today. Um, now, as a fellow historian, one of the things that I'm kind of always interested in are the archives. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the materials that you used. Um, you note in your book that you focus uh, predominantly on the archives of the International Criminal Tribunal, Tribunal for the former uh, Yugoslavia. This is an enormous uh, archive. Um, so tell us what challenges do historians face working with these sources? Right. Well, I love talking about archives. I'm very happy that, you, that you're asking me. And I, I'm almost on some kind of a mission to get these archives used more. So I try to talk about it to anyone who will listen. Uh, but basically, I talk about the sources extensively in my book. And, and these are the ICTY archives are enormous, as you already noted. So this uh, was a court that operated for 25 years, indicted 161 people, conducted dozens of trials. Uh, some of them were huge. Some of the trials that related to Srebrenica, for example, multiple accused, hundreds of witnesses, thousands of pieces of paper, years in the courtroom. Slobodan Milosevic's trial, which of course ended without a judgment because he died. Uh, Ratko Mladic, Radovan Karadzic, and numerous, numerous other people um, whose names won't be recognizable to uh, uh, to you know anyone who's really not into it uh, uh, in, in depth. These lasted for years and included the presentation of thousands of pages of evidence. And this evidence, I think it's kind of to illustrate, these are military and intelligence reports from the field during the war, intercepted conversations, police orders, political party meeting minutes, um, state institution meeting minutes, local authorities documentation, almost 5,000 witnesses testified um, at the ICTY, and some did so numerous times. So for example, people who survived the killings in Srebrenica, I think there were eight or so, maybe, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So the, the executions after the fall of Srebrenica, these people testified numerous times. Um, insiders, so um, also uh, provided crucial testimony. And insiders are basically people who were closely involved 
with the perpetration of crimes. Um, so, you know, people who were maybe not necessarily, you know, killing people in the on the execution sites, but were, you know, the bus driver who took the, the victims to the site. Or, you know, a fellow officer who was kind of implicated in the events, but was maybe not kind of di- directly personally involved. Uh, so these insiders provided really incredibly important evidence because this is the, the type of information that outsiders wouldn't know. And, and maybe that is, you know, the type of information that is maybe not necessarily written down. So you don't get archives and documents that say, you know, go and murder everyone in this village, a stamp and sign. So the, you know, these insiders kind of often say the, say the things that were un, un, unwritten, you know, say the things that don't appear necessarily explicitly uh, in an archive. So I have a recent article that um, is called Archives of Mass Violence, Understanding and Using the ICTY Trial Records in a special issue of Comparative Southeast European Studies, and it's open access. Uh, So I talk about, you know, the archive and what's in it and how to use it uh, in that piece more. But just one or two more short comments on the collection. So the archive is both enormous, but also importantly, partially inaccessible. Um, while the archive is available online to anyone with an email address, and when I say archive, these are you know transcripts from court sessions, evidence material, and a bunch of other uh, uh, sort of documents that are created in a judicial process. That said, many important documents, confidential exhibits uh, from trials involving, for example, sensitive state documents, remain confidential, and we don't know when and if those records will become accessible. And I am also kind of on a mission to get my fellow historians more interested in this in in terms of lobbying for access to these records. It's been almost 30 years since many of them were created. Um, The court um, is not kind of indebted uh, in any way to release them. So I think there needs to be more public pressure to be like, hey, these documents are, I mean, if, if, you know, if I'm from the former Yugoslavia, these documents are also mine. They refer to what, you know, to what we've been through as a, as a community. So I would really like people to, to kind of lobby more for access to them. But, you know, still the ICTY needs to be applauded for making the evidence available. As most courts, international and domestic, do not provide this access. You know, I live in The Hague. Most of the courts here absolutely do not provide the same level of access. So I think the ICTY or now the residual mechanism, this institution that inherited some of the work of the ICTY. Um, it is great that they're, you know, doing this and that historians and other researchers can really look into these archives because there's no better collection in this world um, about what happened to us as, as, as former Yugoslavs. So finally, I would also say that I do not use judgments as a source in my findings. So I use primary sources. And so the court saying someone is guilty or not guilty makes absolutely no difference to me. Uh, law operates based on other rules, and those are not relevant for historians, I think, in making their findings. And I talk about this book also in my book. And just uh, a sort of finally, finally, um, I also used mostly documents written by forces, quote unquote, on the same side. So in writing about Serbian paramilitaries, I do not base my findings on documents of the, for example, Croatian Intelligence Service or Bosnian government's intelligence service. I use documents that were created by various Serbian forces in Serbia proper and the institutions of the kind of entities in the making, for example, Republika Srpska's army, police, etc. So I I did not use, quote unquote, enemy documents uh, for my uh, findings. And I think this is also uh, really important uh, to note. But again, this article that I recently published would really, I think, be a good introduction to 
scholars that are thinking about potentially, you know, uh, um, heading into this direction and using this really, really incredibly valuable uh, collection. Mm. Yeah, look, absolutely. Your book gives such a good impression of the um, the stoicism, I guess, required to work through this archive, both, both in terms of volume, but of course, its content. Um, and I would definitely invite our listeners to um, have a look at, at the article as well, the Archives of Mass Violence, because I think you open there a little bit of uh, a broader perspective on sort of how do you approach this archive, noting, for example, that this is not just something that is a source for researchers and scholars, but there is a kind of benefit um, in opening that to much broader um, not only audience, but scale of professionals, including, for example, artists, who uh, artists from former Yugoslavia who have used this archive in various different ways to try to raise visibility of these issues um, in, in in countries of former Yugoslavia. Um, I want to move absolutely, to, yeah, yeah. Just if sure, I can sure. add one more absolutely. thing, I also think in some ways, I mean, these archives, the way I see it, are also a kind of a memorial. You know that that the fate of the people that were tortured, beaten, raped. Uh, uh, robbed, humiliated, um, slapped, you know, just treated in the worst possible way, this kind of depository is also a way to say, hey, this happened. Hey, this is not going to just be left, you know, and forgotten. And and this is not to say that, of course, the archives, you know, uh, explicitly refer to every single victim, because this is a war crimes trials archives, right? So it's, if, if it wasn't part of the process, it's not going to appear prominently, in the trials. But luckily, the trials were many, and and many of the trials were also quite, you know, all-encompassing, so to say, for certain municipalities and for certain camps and for certain places of detention. Srebrenica, for example, is extremely well documented. So in some way, I think it's also a way to sort of just remember, you know, the the, the victims of of this uh, violence. I mean, I think that's a, a very good point, especially in the context where we we struggle quite a bit to um, have visible um, sites and monuments to victims of the war. There's such a contested kind of piece of uh, public art and public architecture still to this day, um, and I, I guess this is some kind of a, a, a depository that that you know it, it's is there. It's physical. It's it's recorded. So that that's really important. Um, I want to, yes, for us to talk a little bit about um, the formation of these paramilitary units. I mean, that's a quite a um, interesting and, and um, little known, I guess, aspect of, of this story. Um, the Yugoslav People's Army was the sole official armed force of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And now with the breakup of the country, we see kind of the sudden proliferation of, of unofficial, irregular or p- paramilitary units. So I was wondering if you can tell us about bit about how these units were established and what I'm particularly interested in, who were its members? And, you know, you know, in your book, this is kind of an important point that at the same time in Serbia, there are all these right men who are trying to avoid draft, resist. Um, so who are these men who do, and yeah, predominantly men, right, who, who do become members of, of these units? Sure. So I, I think it's important to, to, to start by realizing kind of the, the dynamic nature of paramilitarism. So these units changed in size, in capacity, in their relationship with uh, Belgrade's regime and local authorities. So it wasn't kind of a static, you know, a, a sort of relationship um, and, and static way of being, so to say, um, in the contested territories. 
um, the biggest surge of mobilization was, of course, early in the war in Croatia and then BIH, so Bosnia-Herzegovina, so 1991 and 1992. This is kind of peak years in terms of, of numbers. Also, it's important to note that not all units were the same. So this is kind of my big, one of my big findings, I would say, is that in literature generally and in conversations, they tended to be treated kind of in bulk, you know, paramilitaries. But they were really set up differently. They operated differently and ultimately um, also attacked civilians differently. Um, and I discussed this at, uh, at length in, in chapter five of my book. So I also tried to say something about the different violence that they tended to perpetrate. For the Serbian regime, I would say the units fulfilled sort of two key purposes, and, and we'll talk about that um, uh, in a moment as well, but they provided plausible deniability. So to advance political, territorial, demographic goals through violence, which could be outsourced to seemingly independent actors. States do this all the time, and this is nothing new. Uh, the units also provided additional troops for the war effort. Because as you mentioned, in certain urban centers, Belgrade, for example, there were actually few people willing to go to war in Croatia or Bosnia. So the regime needed troops to advance its interests. So these two things, plausible deniability and kind of boosting troop numbers, was, I would say, key. Um, after all, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, after Croatia and, and Bosnia-Herzegovina became independent, as Yugoslavia disintegrated, the Yugoslav army could not legally be there anymore. And I cite in my book um, members who were highly placed in, in the regime saying, you know, we're going to be viewed as aggressors. We need to formally get out of there. So the regime had to re rely on other means to advance its interests. And sort of the what I call kind of for the purposes of this discussion, kind of rebelled Serbs in Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Of course, they also had their own forces, crucially paid for from Belgrade. Uh, but that was not enough. So these units provided a way for Belgrade to participate directly and without suffering kind of additional uh, consequences uh, for it, you know. Um, uh, so th these are the reasons, I think, why this regime, but also others throughout the world, tend to use these kinds of units. So the units, crucially, were established through cooperation. So it's really important that, you know, one of my findings is that these units were not some, like, grassroots, spontaneous, popular response. These units were state supported. And without state support, they would have, you know, dwindled in a week. Um, so these these were supported by a wide variety of actors, state and non-state, formally non-state kind of provided that support. Um, the brain of the operation seems to have been the state security services from Serbia. But again, much of that document documentation is still inaccessible because, the of course, Serbia's interests is you know, to not have these documents publicly available. And again, this is not something that is unique to Serbia. Many other states do that as well. But many investigative journalists also wrote about the ties between the regime, the state security, organized crime, and this kind of units. So the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the Yugoslav Army, through its weapons depots, local authorities, they all kind of worked together with tensions, of course, especially through time, in mobilizing and deploying these men. Um, and who they were... Um, the war crimes archives from The Hague are actually kind of limited in, in telling us much about the individual level because it's 
the trial is not about people's kind of personal stories. They don't ask questions like, how did you get to participate? You know, this kind of stuff sort of episodically appeared because the trial is, is a focused effort. It's not like a, a broader effort, like, for example, a truth commission, right, where it's more open what we would be talking about, at least theoretically. The trial is much more pointed. So these images about who these guys were, you get kind of episodically. But also I try to use other um, uh, other sources, you know, investigative journalism, um, and, and all these kinds of kind of uh, additional complementary uh, sources. Um, and then I think it's important to say they came from, of course, football fan circles um, and, and other, for example, martial art clubs. Um, and I talk about this in my book. I think one of the reasons why is that, you know, when you need a bunch of people to go to war, you want people who are used to use their bodies for violence. They, you want people who are okay with hurting other people. So football fan circles, martial arts clubs, those kinds of uh, gathering places for young, energetic men uh, were definitely one of the kind of human resources pools, so to say. Um, then former state security assets um, and hitmen like Arkan, uh, for example, who's going to be well-known, Jet Koreznatovich Arkan is going to be well-known to anyone who you know knows anything about the war in the former Yugoslavia. So organized crime circles, then also adventurous young men, self-declared declared patriots, uh, former French legionnaires, gullible young men who were peer pressured, unemployed guys, guys from the diaspora born to Serbian parents. So it was really a wide, wide mix of, of people, some of them kind of more ideologically aware, more nationalist, some other ones more kind of lost, looking for some adventure, social advancement, those kinds of things. So it's very difficult to, to kind of say what was a typical volunteer, because I don't think there was such a thing. Yeah, sure, of course. And that's a quite a diverse group of people. And you also note in your book that the profile of these um, units evolves over the course of um, uh, wars in, in Croatia and Bosnia. So uh, what were some of the functions that these units fulfilled and how they operate and how did they change during this, these years of war? Right. So I already mentioned the plausible deniability and the boosting troop numbers and sort of providing the regime with an opportunity to advance its goals through units which were um, not seen uh, uh, as under its direct control. So kind of outsourcing of violence, so to say. The levels of training varied, uh, but often formation of units was tangled uh, or uh, up with or kind of followed training being provided to these volunteers. So there were camps which acted kind of like nurseries, kind of like small incubators, so to say, to grow and strengthen paramilitary capacity. And then these members that were trained, if they were talented, they were themselves made trainers, commanders, and sort of shipped out to uh, do the business that they were trained to do, right? So after the surge of numbers in 1992 and 1991, the numbers of volunteers steadily drops, um, kind of little by little by the end of the war in Bosnia. Uh, some units get kind of formalized or sucked into um, existing uh, semi-formal institutions of wannabe states, for example, Republika Srpska or, you know, in, in, in the, the, the entity that the uh, Serbs in Croatia also um, uh, created, Republika Srpska Krajina. Um, this is kind of a complex story. So you'll have to read the book about the establishment because it's a lot of actors and there's a lot of stuff going on. But the deployment of um, also varied significantly be between Croatia and Bosnia and, and then Kosovo later. I think we'll mention it a little bit later in one of the later questions. But the main reason why Kosovo was different in how the units deployed was 
the fact that Kosovo at the time was legally part of Serbia and that shaped the unit's deployment. Um, the, the, basically, the, the Serbia um, and its armed forces had every right to be there. This was formally their territory, which is not the case with Croatia and Bosnia once they became independent. So with this fact, the calculation around deniability changed, uh, and that had important effects on the ground. But uh, I'll think we're going to get into it in a moment. But basically, members often moved between units. Um, I would say that the more talented ones, the more sort of eager and and um, well-trained that exhibited significant potential were sort of uh, advanced towards higher value units. Um, So there was some mobility as well between them. Um, And there was a certain continuity and adaptability to the units as well, kind of as part of this paramilitary project. For example, the Special Operations Unit, which in Serbia would call YSO, Unitsa Specialna Operacija, survived and even enabled um, the fall of Milosevic, then strengthened, and in fact threatened the state itself when some of its members assassinated the post-Milosevic reformist Prime Minister Zoran Đinđić in March 2003. Um, so there is really a lot of, of change uh, through uh, the decade. And, and you know, the, the dynamics of the war shaped, shaped the units, but the units also shaped the dynamics uh, of the war as well. Hmm. I, I was wondering if you can maybe clarify a little bit this, this dynamic between um, the Serbian state and, and these um, entities within the Serbian state proper and the paramilitary units. In, in particular, this communication, like on the one hand, they are, at arm's length in order to for the Serbian state to avoid accountability. On the other hand, they are supported by the state, as you know, they wouldn't exist if there was no financial support um, and, and other ways of, of controlling those units. Do we have um, materials or, or documents that tell us about those channels of communications? How, how do we um, get a bit of a better sense of those those channels, I guess? Right. So we have several people that testified that were members of these units. There were also certain documents that were seized, um, logs, you know, military kind of or uh, um, units logs as to where they were and what they were doing. There are also um, personnel files for a bunch of these uh, uh, these guys. They re- they formally are um, uh, confidential, but recently there was a Rolling Stone article uh, about one paramilitary member. Um, if you just uh, Google um, uh, uh, Rolling Stones paramilitary Serbia, you will come to the article. It just came out a couple of months ago, and they dug up some uh, 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 some of this information as well and kind of put it together. So um, uh, there's like a digestive sort of version, so to say, of some of these documents in this source. Um, so there, you know, some of the information comes uh, comes from there. Um, I, I think what we can see definitely is that there were certain practices that were implemented in order to have this connection between the regime and the units, while at the same time kind of muddying the waters for outside observers about who these units were and who was kind of standing behind them or who they quote unquote belonged to. And I call, call it in my book kind of the mechanics of plausible deniability. So kind of how that works. And there was a bunch of these practices that um, that the units employed. For example, a lot of the, the, the guys were not formally employed. They were kind of hired and paid in cash. Um, they signed papers often with just nicknames. 
um, you know, these units did not appear in state budget uh, and, and on those kinds of uh, practices. So it was quite an elaborate sort of uh, scheme. Um, and what I think that is, you know, is quite um, uh, quite successful. Um, and I think this is also something that other states realize, which is why they, they continue using these kinds of units. Yeah, one, one of the things that I was reminded of is um, in my own work on, on Second World War and the sort of Soviet military during that period is there was a prohibition uh, allegedly on writing diaries during this period. Mm. And I'm reminding of that story, especially Probably when smart. You, yeah, yeah. you know in your book of one of these you know, um, participants um, writing a diary, which is now, of course, quite an interesting source and insight into this really complex and, as you say, uh, communication that's kind of muddied along the way purposely. Yeah. Um, now I want to uh, move from the front front line to Serbia, and um, of course, these paramilitary units um, had an impact on on life in Serbia itself, on its uh, political life, on, on institutions, and and the society how it operated in the nineteen nineties and, and beyond. Um, so, how does their involvement in Serbian society manifested during this period? Right. So the, the paramilitary units, as you know, as you noted, um, through the ties to state security, organized crime, I would say they criminalized the state and in many ways hollowed it from within. So it's not like crime and, you know, state security and all of that involvement didn't exist prior to the war. It did. Um, but it was deepened. It was spread. Um, and, and, you know, as I said, kind of hollowed the state from within. In the 1990s, there was a time of enhanced organized crime activity, smuggling, sanctions busting. Um, there was much money to be made, and some of the paramilitary guys were busy making it. Um, sort of looting and how that wealth arrived as well to Serbia also mattered. I already mentioned uh, their role in the fall of Milosevic uh, with the special operations units, for example, um, when when they didn't rise to defend him. So the JSO members, the special operations units, uh, also assassinated Djindjic, uh, and in a way, they arrested Serbia's democratic reform, possibly for a generation, kind of threw it off. Um, and, and they also, the ISO as well, was deeply, deeply entangled and even kind of merged with a organized crime uh, um, operation called the Zemun clan. So I did not focus in this book uh, so much on this, but these paramilitaries were and remain also a cultural phenomenon. So people who were around at the time will remember, for example, the comic book about Captain Dragon's units, Kninja, or the celebrity role Arkan and his turbofolk singer wife, Tsetsa, continued, you know, they had it and they continue to have it 20 years since Arkan was killed. The same goes for Milorad Ulemeklegia. So he was the commander of the YSO, the Special Operations Unit, and before one of Arkan's lieutenants. So this is a former legionnaire who is in jail, serving multiple long sentences for, among others, killing Jinjic. These guys remain on the front pages of tabloid newspapers to this day. There is a certain fascination, a certain cultural grip these guys retain even now, you know, almost 30 years since they were important actors in this story. Um, in, in some ways, it's almost like a soap, soap opera sometimes. When you, when it you it, it is. I, I mean, for a long time, they were their own genre, right, of publishing, like I think it's called exactly. like criminal, criminal Chronicles or something like that. There were people quite, it was like a dark fascination with this. <laughs> the yeah, and this is really fascinating that you have guys that have been locked up, like Legia has been locked up for like, I don't know, 15 years now uh, uh, and and you you 
it probably even more. And and you think to yourself, like he, you know, he has this grip still on the kind of public imagination of what it means to be a brave, manly Serb. What is kind of a cool guy to you know youngsters and and things like that? It's incredibly like what what is the kind of attitude that one would emulate if you're kind of you know growing up and kind of, you know, growing up into kind of being a cool guy on the streets of Belgrade and things like that. It's incredible, this cultural grip that these guys still have. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something about that secondhand memory there, the generation that wasn't, didn't really witness the 1990s and the full expand of this, the impact of these units, but that these men are now becoming kind of part of a different mythology and cultural kind of um, landscape, as, as you note, uh, which is, yeah, something to be worried about, probably. Um, now I want us to move to a, a period after after the um, end of wars in, in Croatia and Bosnia, because these paramilitary units continued to play a significant role, um, and in particular during the series of conflicts in in Kosovo. Um, tell us what that looks like now in the context of Kosovo. What is this paramilitary activity look like, and how does it compare to the earlier versions? Right. So as I noted a little bit earlier, Kosovo was different because it was legally Serbia. Um, The regime did not have to hide the unit's presence. Um, They were by then integrated and in different ways in regular army and police units. What needed to be hidden was the civilian victims they were causing. Uh, So we have bodies of dead Albanian civilians being transported around Serbia during this period in an effort to hide bodies. Mass graves on police training grounds like Batajnica outside of Belgrade, I think 744 victims or something like that. So a massive number of dead civilians, Albanian civilians are being buried, um, you know, in a, in a, in a police training uh, site. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons why that was, was because of course the perpetrators knew the, the training site is well protected. This is the police, uh, grounds. So, you know, um, journalists and others can't easily come to snoop around there. Um, so this is, I think, an important difference with Kosovo. Also in Kosovo, the numbers are much, much smaller. They're nothing like we've seen in 1991 and 1992. Um, so here they're kind of a smaller uh, actor. But at the same time, they're different also because at this time, the special operations unit is kind of part of the state. They're not anymore being denied. They're, in fact, kind of the flagship fancy elite uh, unit um, that represents the state. So I think that the, the Kosovo is quite different from the, the mobilization and the deployment that we saw in, um, in Croatia and in, Serbia, and in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. And, and to, your, to your kind of knowledge and then of this material, are there any of the individuals or units that are operating throughout the entire period? Um, well, there. I would say that the what we would call and what Philip Schwarm in his excellent series, the unit Jedinica, uh, called the this what we would also call the Red Berets. It's. Um, I would say that this is one entity, so to say, that has a certain thread throughout the 1990s. So from you know, kind of 1991 early on when their training starts at the Golubic camp close to Knin, and then this universe of of paramilitaries associated, affiliated, or trained by them spreads out. Um, they act in Croatia, Bosnia, and then we see them again in Kosovo. So I would say they, but they 
change shape, name, <laughs> affiliation. So um, I would say the 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 kind of the core, the spirit of the Red Berets is is something that continues throughout the, the decade. And the other ones are kind of on and off and then they get reawakened and, you know, and redeployed and then they kind of go dormant again. Um, it's much more kind of a patchy picture, I would say. Sure, sure. Uh, now, your book closes with a consideration of the assassination of Serbian Prime Minister um, Zoran Djinjic on 12th of March 2003 in Belgrade. So we are approaching the anniversary of this event. And, you know, I remember very well that period. And that's probably one of the strongest memory of, of those years for, for most of us who were um, in Belgrade at, at that time. And the kind of deep shock that that e- event um, triggered in, in Serbian yeah. society. Um and um, it's almost difficult to talk about it uh, without getting really kind of re- reliving that 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 moment and and the, and the extent of that shock, I guess. Um, and th- he was assassinated by members associated with a Serbian para- paramilitary unit. Um, tell us about the impact and the significance of of this event, and um, and perhaps if you can maybe reflect on the relevance of that event in relations to the subsequent efforts in Serbia to deal with this violent past and to engage with the ICTY processes. Right, right. Yeah, I also I also remember um, sort of the, the the event. I was I was in Zagreb at the time, and kind of the 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 fear and the the panic and the you know conversations that I've had with my friends in in Serbia at the time. Um, so yeah, I, a lot can be said on this. But I, I already mentioned that I, that I think the assassination of Jinjic arrested reform, real reform, in ways that continue to this day. Serbia's elites remain unable and unwilling to confront the violence and the crimes they're policies unleashed in the 1990s. So sadly, they're not unique. I mean, I come from Croatia. Croatia struggles with many similar issues of its own role, of the, you know, the narrative that it has uh, about the war. Um, So, uh, you know, and many states around the world, like the United States struggles with like the civil war, you know, and, and why did the civil war happen? So I think, you know, Questions like this are, of course, sensitive and delicate, and, and people just don't want to look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, oh, what was what was done in my name? You know, who? who? So, uh, you know, uh, in, in some ways, um, that's a struggle that is not unique to Serbia. Um, you know, states refuse to face and condemn crimes perpetrated by their forces in their name. And I think Jinjic was busy with and on the road to addressing some of these issues, addressing some of the organized crimes grip, I mean, overtaking of the state, essentially. And that's why he was killed, because the organized crime and the guys around the Zemun clan and the guys around the special operations unit and their friends and and, um, uh, colleagues were threatened by the the state reforming. Um, They were threatened uh, and and that they felt it. And, and you know, killing Jinjic was... um, in an effort, an effort to save themselves, um, they failed. Many, you know, many ended up in jail in the in the aftermath, but also many didn't. <laughs> so, you know, uh, some of the associates just got away with it, um, and so there was never really a true reckoning about the broader political project, what it was about, what the crimes and suffering uh, it perpetrated and produced. There is a there's also significant denial about the crimes of the 1990s. But again, you know, Serbia sadly is not alone in this issue. Um, So I think Djinjic was on the way to trying to, you know, 
fix some of that, so to say, if, if that's a suitable word. And then he was prevented from doing so. And no one ever after appeared with a similar plan and, and with a similar sort of ambition, so to say, uh, and chances of success. When it comes to the ICTY processes, they're largely completed and tribunal closed while a residual mechanism, the, this residual institution, uh, works on the remaining tasks. So one important judgment is actually coming this year, the final, final, final trial in the case of two important defendants uh, who were high-ranking state security officials. So that process, um, people who follow this will know, Stanisic and Simatovic, um, this process is 20 years in the making, uh, which I think also speaks to the complexity of the topic uh, and these entanglements between state security, organized crime and paramilitaries. Um, this process is all about the state funding, establishing and directing paramilitaries in Croatia and Bosnia. The attention has faded. So I live in The Hague. I was recently at the appeals argument in this trial and like no one seems to care about while this is really one of the important, most important trials that we've ever had at this tribunal. Um, so it's really a crucial case, and I'm very curious to hear what the judges will say finally. Uh, so whatever, but whatever happens, the trial um, produced archives, again, many of them were confidential, but the archives from this trial and many others that are available, they remain, you know, they are out there and they can be used no matter the outcome of the trials. And I really encourage scholars, especially historians and, you know, younger scholars to use this incredibly important collection to study the violence in the former Yugoslavia. We can learn a lot about perpetrators, about mass violence, about paramilitaries, but also about transitional justice and criminal trials as a process uh, from uh, these records. Um, so in some ways, the story about, you know, what happened to Serbia is, is a sad one, um, I, I would say, um, uh, you know, with the assassination of, of Djindjic, um, you know, the, the current elites are very much not uh, interested, I think, in, in dealing with this past. And, and, you know, I'm pretty actually quite um, um, kind of pessimistic about right. kind of transitional justice. That was actually going to yeah. be my, my question. Where do you see this, yeah, the future of this? Yeah, I would um, say for the entire yeah. region, the best days of transitional justice mm. for the former Yugoslavia are over. It's the case for Croatia, that's the case for Bosnia-Herzegovina, that's the case for Serbia, uh, Kosovo, I think, as well. Whatever we saw from interest in this, you know, war crimes trials, quote-unquote, what many called kind of reconciliation and, and all of that, I think that what, what we've accomplished, we've accomplished. Um, and I really don't think much, um, I don't expect um, the, the, the because the, we've seen the, the kind of the falling of the number of trials. We've seen many kind of lower level sort of investigations and stuff, pretty much nothing kind of up the chain of command. You know, it's just the, the institutions are sort of just failing, I would say, in, in, in many of these efforts to, you know, hold accountable people that were responsible for this at the national level. So I'm very sort of pessimistic in, in that regard. I think really the best days of transitional justice in the former Yugoslavia are behind us, sadly. Eva, on that note, I want to thank you for being a guest today and for talking about your book, um, Serbian Paramilitaries and the Breakup of Yugoslavia. And I hope this conversation is part of, you know, effort to keep this on the record, to keep this conversation alive. We are far from fully um, dealing with, with this past and it continues to influence our, our present quite quite uh, profoundly. Um, I was wondering if you can tell us a bit what is what, what are you working on, on at the moment? 
Sure. Um, so I've been in The Hague now for almost 14 years, and I continue following war crimes trials that are taking place at numerous institutions, for example, the International Criminal Court. I remain interested in researching perpetrators and perpetration of violence, and like many scholars and practitioners, I'm keenly following developments developments in Ukraine, and this that's basically for two main reasons. One is that the discussion around justice um, for crimes in Ukraine are rapidly changing and shaping the field of accountability and judicial justice more broadly. What I've seen in the last couple of months, for example, around the discussion about an establishment potentially of another tribunal for the crime of aggression that's really shaping the field. Um, And that's, I think, an important reason why people should pay attention. Um, And secondly is the war in Ukraine has many overlaps with the former Yugoslavia. And the accountability process um, uh, is already struggling Uh, in ways that are comparable to what I experienced when I worked in Bosnia. For example, the Ukrainian uh, General General Prosecutor's uh, Office um, registered, I think, by now over 70,000 potential cases of war crimes. Um, We had enormous numbers of registered war crimes that needed investigation, potential registered war crimes that needed investigation as well. So some of the, the ways in which Bosnia struggled in the aftermath of all of this is, is something that Ukra- Ukraine is and will be experiencing. So I'm currently engaged in some of these conversations about what kind of institutions best serve the victims and survivors in Ukraine and how not to repeat some mistakes we made in the former Yugoslavia when seeking to fight impunity for these horrific crimes. I think the former Yugoslavia has much to say about what works and what doesn't in accountability efforts. Um, And I hope Ukrainians and those who are supporting them take note to not repeat the same mistake, to strategize better, to explain trials and processes to the public uh, better. So I suspect my second book will be about the efforts to achieve a measure of justice for crimes in Ukraine. Eva, good luck with your research, and we hope to have you on our channel again with your future work. Thank you again. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really a pleasure.